0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Whether it's statues or place names, our country has grappled with what to do about symbols of its racist roots. Here in Colorado, that debate has played out in a Denver neighborhood, Stapleton. It's named for Benjamin Stapleton, who served five terms as mayor starting in the 1920s. He was also a member of the Ku Klux Klan. But the neighborhood's not all that bears his name. So does a public school, DSST Stapleton the campus of the Denver School of Science and Technology. And a writing teacher there, P.J. Shields, thought adults shouldn't be the only ones talking about the name Stapleton. P.J., thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Tell us about how you decided to make this an issue to tackle
1: at your school. It's kind of interesting. I have the kids tackle as many real-world topics as possible in the writing to keep the engagement really high. Uh, Earlier in the year, I was driving to work and saw yet another news crew covering the Stapleton issue in the neighborhood. When I saw the news crew again, I thought, maybe it's time to take it to the kids and see what they think about it as it's associated with our school. Because
0: Stapleton is in the name of the school, DSST Mm -hmm. Stapleton. This was a writing project, but in many ways, it was a research and history project, too, wasn't it?
1: It was. We, We were giving the kids a lot of background information on both the Klan in Colorado about who Ben Stapleton was as a mayor and as a member of the Klan and the entire process of his name hopping from the airport to the neighborhood to the school. You
0: have white students in your class. You have black students in your class, Latino students. Did you think maybe this would be a powder keg?
1: I know these students. I never worried about their ability to tackle this topic thoughtfully, with empathy, and with great academic consideration. I, I would argue that they have handled this issue with more maturity than maybe you would expect even from adults.
0: <laughs> PJ, I understand that you think 7th and 8th grade is a particularly ripe time to debate things like this. Tell me about why.
1: Our kids are in a place where I think they often feel really powerless, I definitely heard some attitude from the kids that we can talk about this, but we won't be heard. That's a standard stance for kids this age. What we really wanted to, my colleagues and I wanted to do, was help them find their voices, to use their words. And finding that power now makes formative leaders later.
0: Why don't we meet some of these students, shall we?
1: Great. My name is Brooklyn Luckett, and I'm
2: in
3: 7th grade. My name is Sage Jones, and I'm in 8th grade. Brooklyn, Sage, what did you think of this assignment?
2: We just jumped straight into it, and I didn't know how to react at the moment because it was just all this information about Ben Stapleton, the person our school is named after, being KKK, and I just, I had a hard time understanding that, so...
0: Do either of you live in Stapleton? I do. You do, Sage. Okay. And, Brooklyn, you're not in the neighborhood no. proper. And, Brooklyn, are you African American? Yes. Okay. I wonder when you absorbed all that this assignment would entail and when you learned about the name Stapleton, what did you think? How did it feel to go to school?
2: I kind of felt unsure about my safety or about what my school was about because our core values were responsibility, respect, integrity, integrity courage and doing your best. And after I read a couple articles and learned some more background about him, it revealed to me that he didn't live what our school was supposed to embody.
0: So, Brooklyn, did you go into this thinking the name should change? Yes. And Sage, I understand your reasons starting out were very different from your reasons at the end. Will you uh, help me understand that?
3: Well, at the very beginning, I had kind of just wanted it to change because, you know, like I knew some of the history behind the KKK and I just didn't want any of that to be a part of a place where, you know, I go to school every day. Mm. You're and from the South. I am, and so it, it does hold special meaning for me. And you're multiracial.
0: I am. and S- So you're aware of some of that Southern history. Were you surprised that it was in Colorado, too?
3: I was actually very surprised, especially because, you know, like, this is Denver, and we're very well known for just being very open and accepting and, you know, a fairly just fairly open community and this was present and it's just kind of entirely opposed to our beliefs here. Okay. Generally. So that was your view going into this. What did you get to? I got to the point where I felt a little more specific about why, not just because it was, you know, the KKK and everything, but just because of everything that had happened with Stapleton himself. And I just felt that it's disrespectful almost to a lot of our students who are of different races and ethnicities and religions that this group was entirely opposed to. And the fact that, you know, a lot of these students have to walk into their school every day knowing that we bear a name that does not respect them. So it became
0: in a way a much more personal issue as you looked at the effect that it might have on the students as opposed to, I just don't want anything to do with the KKK.
3: Yeah, it it became a lot less general. I mean... I still obviously do have some of that belief, but that is just like my own personal thing. I think that the community at large, and especially myself, feels that now it's just, it's not a good representation of who we are, and it's very important that, that we don't have those ties.
0: But you, PJ, as their teacher, really wanted them to have a nuanced sense of this history. And tell us about some of what you heard from students who, who still don't think the name should change.
1: Absolutely. The full history of Ben Stapleton was in the picture. I actually tracked down a copy of Hooded Empire.
0: This is a book about the KKK, I think, in in Colorado.
1: Right. It's specifically about the history of the KKK in Colorado. And uh, it has a chapter that actually covers a good chunk of Stapleton's history. And I provided that to my higher readers, including Brooklyn. So the students did have access to the full history, along with the History Colorado biography. Uh, The students who tend to want to keep the name, they want to keep the name because they feel like the meaning of the name is not Ben Stapleton, that they have created the name Stapleton and everything that it represents now as a high performing charter school, as a school with an amazing record for sending kids to college. And they want to keep that meaning. That's
0: interesting. So they, they see the much more current history as it relates specifically to the school.
1: That's what I read in a lot of our essays, yes.
0: What other reasons might there be for keeping the name from your students?
1: Some people see removing the name as removing history itself. Mm. And that maybe it's an object lesson to have the name there. Correct. Because future students
0: could then debate this, right?
1: They certainly could, Yeah.
0: Okay, so Brooklyn, you read into the history of Ben Stapleton. Will you take me to an aha moment? I
2: was surprised when they were talking about how he put a KKK in the spot of a chief police over the police department.
0: Mm, That had to have been a bit unsettling to read. It was. What else did you learn on this journey?
2: I really just learned that it didn't seem like he joined them because he wanted to join the things they were about. But he did it because he needed the votes and he just wanted the support for being the mayor
0: that this was politically expedient in other words yes every middle school student at dsst stapleton took part in this assignment then there was a school-wide survey and a majority of students 57 percent, thought the name should change 12 of them presented their arguments to the administration luckett and jones were among them
2: honestly was nervous but i felt like we got the point across about what we wanted to see change and how we wanted to see it happen
3: I I absolutely think that the change should have been more immediate, but I also understand why this is a very, it's very convoluted and debated topic, and it needs to be spoken about a lot more before any decision can be made.
0: Indeed, the answer from school leaders, they wanted more input, and will take up
3: the issue next school year. What was the best part about this assignment? Um, I think the best part was just becoming a lot more informed in general, because everybody was able to kind of hone their beliefs a little bit and to understand what they were saying without just making a, you know, a biased, like, general opinion. So not just speaking without information, not
0: just bloviating.
3: It's not, and I think that was a large part of it because that's something that absolutely happens a lot, and it was very good for a lot of our members of our community to be very informed about the topic and know what we were talking about before we just made any kind of assumption. Well, thanks, everyone, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. We heard from P.J. Shields, middle school
0: writing teacher at DSST Stapleton, joined by students Brooklyn Luckett and Sage Jones. Governor John Hickenlooper appointed Carlos A. Samor to the Colorado Supreme Court Wednesday. Samor currently presides in the 18th Judicial District, which includes Arapaho and Douglas Counties. In a press conference, he told reporters how people view the judiciary is important to him.
4: The perception of justice is just as important as justice itself. Because if the people don't trust in the justice system, if the people do not have confidence in our justice system, then we're wasting our time and we might as well not have a justice system. If people do not trust the justice system Our democracy fails.
0: Samor, a native of El Salvador, was the judge in the Aurora Theater shooting trial. He was one of three finalists Hickenlooper was considering to replace Nancy Rice, who retires from the state's highest court this summer. Samor is Hickenlooper's fifth appointee to the seven-member court. And recently, the governor told me how he chooses a justice.
4: You know, we've tried to avoid specific issues. How would you vote on Tabor? Right? We don't ask that. Sort of litmus test. Yeah, we don't, we've avoided any litmus test. But we have looked for core values, uh, judges that recognize the importance of small businesses and that small businesses have rights as well and, and that they are often uh, don't have the money to successfully lobby or adjudicate in other ways their needs or their their difficulties. I think we've always put at the top of every list that you know one of the one of the first questions is how do people stand on on civil rights and making sure that every single person in the state is treated fairly. Is that a litmus test? Yes, I think that is. That, that that would if you were going to give one litmus test that people have to recognize that every citizen, every every human being in Colorado has certain inalienable rights. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a judge who'd say no to that. No, I think you're right. But but I think asking the questions and listening to how they articulate and talk about it is illuminating.
0: Governor John Hickenlooper explaining how he picks state Supreme Court candidates. They were hard to miss a swarm of bright green electric scooters. They seemed to come out of nowhere over the Memorial Day weekend in Denver, Some people see them as a great new way to get around for just a few bucks, but they can also be a nuisance. In a few minutes, we'll find out how they've fared in other cities. First, CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis tried a Lime e-scooter for herself.
5: I live in Capitol Hill, and to find your nearest e-scooter or e-bike, you download an app, and it shows you where the nearest one is. And for me, the nearest was actually at the Denver Public Library on Broadway, you know, about a 15-minute walk for me. But then a few minutes later, that scooter was actually gone. So the nearest one for me was more um, closer to 16th Street, actually right here on 16th Street. That's more about like a 20 to 25-minute walk for me. It did feel a little silly to jump in my car to get to a scooter, so I did walk. Um, And I'm here. I found a scooter. The map shows that there should be more around me, but I'm only seeing this one. And then I bumped into Jeb and Jeff. They said that they worked near 16th Street and they were actually looking to try out the scooters. Like me, on their map, they were seeing multiple scooters around but could only find the one that I was trying to boot up. So Jeb and Jeff gave it a go. Okay, so we're scanning the QR code.
4: Unlocking. We thought this would be a really fast way to get to a coffee <laughs> shop.
5: <laughs> and that's not really turning out? No. Does that mean it worked? I
0: think it worked. It says kickstart. How to ride. Push the throttle,
4: boom.
5: And he's off. Hey, that does look pretty fun.
4: Yeah, I know, except he's going to be going a lot faster than me.
5: So Jeb and Jeff were off, one of them on the scooter, the other one chasing the other on the scooter, and I was left scooterless. So I checked the map and I saw a nearby brunch spot, um, about a 20, 25 minute walk for me that had a few scooters parked outside. But by the time that I got there, again, there was only one left. So before I get on the scooter, I have to decide where to go. And I actually connected with a woman on Twitter who says that she's had a Lime scooter sitting in her yard for days now. Uh, She doesn't know what to do with it. She's contacted Lime, and uh, they haven't done anything about it. And she's actually threatened to put it up on Craigslist saying that because it's been in her yard for so long, it's now her property. So I'm going to go meet up with her and uh, talk with her about this. I'm Jackie Schlesniak. So Memorial Day weekend, we went out and ran some errands on Monday afternoon with the kids. And when we drove home, um, we went in our alley and I couldn't park my car because I had a scooter in my driveway. My husband called the company. We're like, please come get it. And I was just I really just didn't want this thing. I didn't know where to put it. Um, Some people had been like, well, put it on the street. And I said, why would I put it on the street? Then it's going to block the street. Put it on the sidewalk. I don't want to put it on the sidewalk. I don't want the disability community mad at me. People use the sidewalk. Pedestrians use the sidewalk. I live in Wash Park. There's a stroller walking on the sidewalk every 15 minutes. I know Denver's done some really good things with, like, bike share and trying to work on the traffic issues um, and increasing public transportation. I'm not entirely sure motorized scooters get to any of those challenges, but I could be wrong. When I was done talking to Jackie, I got back on the scooter and I headed home and what might usually take me 25 minutes on foot, took me about 10 minutes on the scooter. A lot of it was uphill, and sometimes I got it up to 15 miles per hour. So they have a lot of power, and mine said it still had lots of miles left before its battery died. Then I parked it outside of my place. That's the thing about these scooters is you park them wherever you can, and I guess it will stay there until the next rider.
0: Now, we reached out to Lyme, and they say they've removed the scooter from Jackie's yard. They admitted the response time was slow, and they promised to do better as they settle into Denver. Fox 31, meanwhile, reports the city has begun to confiscate scooters that are parked illegally. Lime already has its electric bikes in Aurora, but Denver says they were only given a few days' notice before these several hundred scooters moved in. So how has this played out elsewhere? Well, Patrick Sisson is a reporter with Curbed. It's an online news outlet from Vox that covers cities. He's in San Francisco, where the scooters have been around for a bit longer. And, Patrick, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Tell us about what San Francisco is going through with these scooters.
6: Well, San Francisco has had quite a strong reaction to uh, electric dockless scooters. Uh, When they were introduced a couple months ago, there's a lot of... um, strong opposition uh, they crowded sidewalks they crowded bike lanes um, right now the city has uh, said they're going to remove all the scooters i believe by june 4th from the streets oh. uh, as they figure out a permitting system and uh, they'll then like reintroduce them uh, i guess in a month or two whenever they figure that out um, based on the new regulations the city is putting together the city will remove them or they'll ask lime to remove them um i believe it's a combination of both um, okay. I think they're sort of expecting the companies to do it themselves. Is this Lime's model
0: uh, sort of drop the scooters off and then let cities react and figure it out? Uh, is, is this part of what they want to achieve, do you think?
6: Well, yeah, I think I'd liken it to sort of the Uber model. Um, uh, you know, there's three main scooter companies, uh, Bird, um, Lime, and Spin, And basically, it's a situation where they're sort of uh, begging for forgiveness instead of asking for permission. Um, I actually was in uh, Venice, California, for about the last five months before I came to San Francisco. uh, And the bird scooters started there in Venice and Santa Monica, and they've been all over the place. But, you know, it, it very popular. But, you know, again, fine by the city. They settled for $300,000 with the Santa Monica government, and, and now they're sort of still operating.
0: Okay, so what is it that, that San Francisco has to figure out exactly? What does it mean to regulate these things? And, and what that what might that tell us in Denver?
6: Well, I think the situation is going to be, um, you know, how ma- how many they want, the number of scooters out there, um, how they're going to be required to be uh, parked Um San Francisco had introduced a sort of system where they wanted people to take photos of where the scooters were parked and, you know, send that photo back to the company just to make sure that it's uh, not blocking a doorway or in the way of pedestrians. Um, I think they also want to figure out, like, traffic rules. Um, One of the big issues here is that, um, you know, I've seen it in a lot of cities. uh, You know, scooters are things you're supposed to be riding in the streets, not the sidewalk. But in a lot of cases... um really room on the streets. There's not like a bike lane or something like that where you can ride a scooter. So people end up on sidewalks and that causes a lot of issues. They're kind of getting in the way of pedestrians.
0: Indeed, there's been a lot of confusion about where the scooters can go here in Denver. So there was talk that they could go in bike lanes and then on sidewalks. And there's just a lot of confusion about exactly how to classify them and where they should go. Uh, As you say, there are a number of these scooter providers. What's what do you think is driving them? What what do they want to transform
6: about how we get around? Well, um, you know, as as uh one of the interviewees in your segment uh, mentioned earlier, um there's definitely a desire for people to have um car-free transportation around the city. You know, people want to get around easy, uh they wanna, you know, take a form of transportation that reduces emissions, they want something that's um you know, makes quick and fast and easy to pick up. So on one hand, yes, you know, these scooters are responding to a desire for this sort of multimodal transportation. Um, You know, that's something that people really want. The flip side to this is, you know, cities you know, really aren't prepared for this, right? Cities have to worry about safety. They have to worry about sidewalks. They have to worry about traffic laws and pedestrian safety. Um, and sort of the infrastructure for these things really just isn't there yet in a lot of cases. So, you, you know, sort of find this desire for that kind of transportation, like butting heads with sort of the reality of the transportation infrastructure we have. Do you think Lime might change its approach
0: to to how it unfolds, unveils, unfurls in cities? <laughs>
6: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's tough because there's a lot of cities that are grappling with this right now, and I don't think any company or city has 100% figured out exactly what to do. Um, you have seen some companies... Uh, um, for example, Bird, they proposed something they called the Save Our Sidewalks Pledge, where um, a certain amount of all of the of every rental, uh, you know, the money paid for the rental would go back toward developing infrastructure. They'd remove the scooters from the streets at night, and they would promise to only release a certain amount of scooters based on ridership, so they weren't crowding the streets. There's been a lot of proposals as to sort of how this gets regulated and how it works out. No one's really quite figured that out yet. It's still pretty early days.
0: Do you think that there is more of this coming and could it take different forms? I mean, lo- look into the crystal ball a little bit for me. We're we're seeing just disruption, you know, and and do you expect more yeah. of it?
6: Well, um Definitely, um, and and I think there's uh, on one hand there's uh, it's sort of a follow the money situation. Um, you know, as of a couple days ago, I think the three main companies had something north of two hundred to two hundred fifty million dollars in venture capital money. Wow. Um, and um, earlier this year, Bird, which is one of the bigger companies, had said they have plans to expand to fifty cities by the end of twenty eighteen. So there's a lot going on there. Bird even announced a new funding round uh, that if it goes through as planned, might value them at a $1 billion startup. So there's certainly a lot of excitement, a lot of uh, funding going toward these companies. And I think you're going to see them in a lot of other cities. Um, And and, and I think, again, there's a desire for um, transportation solutions, right? Um, Something, you know, Lime, for instance, uh, they have a system set up in San Diego where they have the scooters, they have bikes, they have other forms of transportation, they're all sort of linked together in, in one you know, app-slash-subscription-type model, where you use this app to unlock all these different vehicles. So I feel like there's a lot of things like this coming, and um, you know, we sort of need to figure out how we're going to regulate them.
0: Yeah, and Denver then, not alone in grappling with that. Thanks for being with us, Patrick. Sure. Thanks. He's Patrick Sisson, reporter with Curbed, and he joined us from San Francisco speaking about Denver's new fleet of electric lime scooters. For some conservatives, certain freedoms appear to be under attack. Freedom from government, Second Amendment freedoms, freedom of religion. And that is the thrust of this year's Western Conservative Summit, June 8th and 9th in Denver. It bills itself as the largest gathering of conservatives outside Washington, D.C. And speakers this time include Attorney General Jeff Sessions, a Parkland shooting survivor, And Jeff Hunt, he's the director of the Centennial Institute. It's a think tank based at Colorado Christian University. Jeff, welcome back to the program.
7: Ryan, great to be with
0: you. Thanks thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. The theme of this year's summit, fortifying freedom. Uh, Why is that important right now? You have a Republican in
7: charge of the White House and in, in charge of Congress. Yeah, great question, Ryan. It gets into two different issues. So one is we want to continue to protect Freedom from government and intrusion. When we look at Second Amendment rights, when we look at religious freedom, uh, all the freedoms that we care deeply about, we want to make sure that government intrusion is not restricting those. But then, secondly, we want to have a conversation about the nature of true freedom and the importance of ordered liberty. And I actually think that's one of the more important aspects of this. Ordered liberty. That's right. What do you that's mean right. by that? So, conservatives believe that there are three necessary functions that have to take place, all three of them in order. uh, for a healthy society to operate. One is justice. The second is order, and the third is freedom. If you, if you lack any one of those, then you have, a, you have a problem with society, and society ends up breaking down. And I think that's particularly relevant in Colorado around drug legalization conversations. So uh, especially our, our libertarian friends, they'll focus on the freedom side of things. They'll say, uh, we don't want government intervention. We want to have kind of an unlimited sense of freedom but uh, it doesn't recognize the importance of order. When we talk about order, we're talking about principles, values, the importance of self-restraint. And so when libertarians only talk about one side of that, you end up uh, in Colorado, this is a great example, in Colorado, you know, Hillary Clinton tends to win by five points. Barack Obama won by five points. But, doctor, or, but marijuana won by 10 points, and doctor-assisted suicide by 30 points. And we think that that's based and rooted in kind of a misunderstanding of freedom. And you see it in quotes by folks that will say, well, I don't want to choose to do it, but um, I don't want to restrict other people from choosing to do it.
0: So you're saying merely looking at government intrusion as a test of conservatism is not seeing the whole picture. That's exactly right, Ryan.
7: That's exactly right.
0: This is a time when it seems freedoms clash, though, a Mm -hmm. baker's freedom not to make a cake for a gay couple, but a gay couple's freedom to have equal access to a business, a person's freedom to own a semi-automatic weapon another's freedom to go to school and not get shot.
7: Yeah, I mean, aren't these freedoms in tension? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we want to discuss. So, for instance, uh, I debated a, a young man named Austin Peterson. He's very popular among young libertarians. He was the runner-up for their libertarian nomination for president. He's running for U.S. Senate in Missouri. And he has a tweet that I bet, I think encapsulates this very well. He wrote, writes, I want to live in an America where gay couples can defend their marijuana farms with fully automatic weapons. Hashtag freedom. And I use that as a quote because I think he's misunderstanding freedom in that sense. What he's actually talking about is license, the ability to just do whatever you want without really any type of restrictions whatsoever. Well, society actually breaks down. You have to have some sense of basis for which our rights come from. Um, we would argue at Colorado Christian University and at the Western Conservative Summit that there's a natural law, that that becomes the foundation and the basis upon our rights. Um, others would argue that rights can be changed. Uh, that's where you get the argument today that we have a health care, a right to health care. Or I've even seen arguments that there should be a universal right to a laptop or a high-speed internet. Um, where do we get the sense of where our rights come from? For us, it's where it's based upon natural law, and that's some of the stuff that we're going to be arguing at the Western Conservative Summit next week.
0: Next week, its theme, as we've said, is fortifying freedom, and we're getting a preview from Jeff Hunt with the Centennial Institute. It's the think tank at Colorado Christian University. No doubt, then, marijuana will come up, yeah. given that that's where the summit takes place, and I can't help... But think of that issue's connection to one of your headliners, and that is Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Do you expect him to talk about drug policy? And and let me also say that on the docket is uh, Republican Senator Cory Gardner, who has essentially said to Jeff Sessions, but... Out,
7: Yeah. (laughs) And Senator Gardner and I have had disagreements about this. Um, And that's one of the aspects I love about the summit is that, you know, we can come to a place and disagree on public policy. But I did specifically invite the attorney general because I wanted him to speak on drug policy. I was in Washington, D.C. with him a few weeks ago, and I heard a speech where he talks about, for him, uh, the issue of drug policy and his strong approach to it is A passion for him because he feels like these drug cartels are taking over our country. Um, We just had a big story in NBC News yesterday about the growth of foreign-based cartels here in Colorado that are hiding in plain sight due to marijuana legalization. So for him, he feels like uh, with the opioid industry, with the um, heroin industry, with the marijuana industry, that they're taking advantage of Americans. They're harming Americans and that's something that he wants to fight against. I'll say Um, that the
0: state is directing more resources to the black market, And there are many who would say, gosh, it's strange to lump marijuana and opioids because they might see that marijuana is potentially an alternative to that, especially when it comes to pain.
7: Yeah. And I I think the challenge we have is that last year, I mean, the the marijuana industry has been selling this idea that somehow marijuana is going to replace opioids as a, as a drug. But just last year, Colorado had more drug overdose deaths than at any point in our state's history. We have a real problem with this. But I think the challenge... That wasn't marijuana. No, it wasn't. But this idea that somehow marijuana is going to substitute opioids is just not taking... It's just not true. Um, I think it it is for some individuals, Jeff. I think there are
0: folks, in fact, uh, we met one whom we'll be reporting on soon, who said, "This, this is
7: my new pain management. But I think, and we've had doctors in Colorado that have that are pain experts that have written against the use of marijuana as some type of substitute for opioid. But I, I think the challenge you have with the marijuana industry is that in Colorado we have incentivized a multi-million-dollar industry to try to hook as many people as they possibly can on this drug. This is becoming Big Tobacco 2.0. And the reason we're passionate about this is because it's taking advantage of Coloradans. They have—this is not just decriminalizing marijuana. This is commercializing marijuana. And they have a cold-heart incentive to hook as many people as they can on this, and that's problematic.
0: Do you think there will be conservatives who are in the cannabis business
7: at the summit— Oh, possibly. They're welcome to come to the summit. Uh Um, And we've had debates. I've debated marijuana three times, including uh, with uh, the head of the... Cannabis Chamber of Commerce. So we're not afraid of the dialogue. But I think what we want to have is an honest dialogue about the impact of marijuana in the state.
0: Okay, someone who's not on the agenda at the summit is the president. Now, he came, uh, what, to 2016? Yep.
7: yeah,
2: Two years that. ago. Mm-hmm.
7: Uh, did you want him this year? Absolutely. We invited him again. Uh, I don't think he's been to Colorado <laughs> since he's been elected. Um, I wish they, you know, would would. I wish he would come. I wish he would do rallies. He's got a 91% Approval rating by identified conservatives in the state. Uh, they're very proud of the source work he's on that? doing. Um, I'd have uh, from our, our, the pollster that we work with, Magellan Strategies, and Dave Flaherty. Okay, um, and uh, he's got a very high approval rating among conservatives. And uh, we would love for him to come back and, and engage. We're very proud of the work that this administration has done to drive to a, uh, drive a conservative agenda. In fact, I think the Heritage Foundation rated that he is a achieved more in his presidency as a conservative agenda than Ronald Reagan did in the first few years of his presidency. Give me an
0: example that conservatives are celebrating.
7: Yeah, everything from the reduction of Planned Parenthood funding through restrictions on Title X to the appointment of uh, Neil Gorsuch. To um, restricting the coal memo is something that we're excited about. I know Corey disagrees on that. The to coal memo has to do with federal enforcement of marijuana laws. That's launch. right. Mm-hmm. That's right. To um, uh, the protection of religious liberty. You know, we faced a lot of challenges on religious liberty from the Obama administration. Even Colorado Christian University did. And... Uh, to, to have those restrictions rescinded by Betsy DeVos and by the Trump administration was something we're very, very happy to see.
0: You are associated with a Christian university. And through that lens, I do wonder what you make of recent developments that I think some people might have trouble squaring sure. with Christianity. That the president apparently paid off a porn star or that mm-hmm. the administration may be using the separation of children and parents as a deterrent to illegal immigration square those things for me.
7: Yeah, well one no one should be sleeping with porn stars. Pornography's terrible. We're we're completely against it and um we I don't know what to make of the president sleeping with porn stars. I don't he said he hasn't. She said They hasn't, then she said she did. And we don't really follow that very much. But uh, I'll say this, nobody should be sleeping with porn stars. It's a terrible industry that destroys families. And we're absolutely 100% against that industry. With regards to illegal immigration, the separation of families, that's something we absolutely need to look at. Um, Our president used to work for prison fellowship. Uh, That's a evangelical conservative. Th- that organization. is to say the president of CCU. CCU? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. I uh, used to work for prison fellowship. And, uh, you know, we want families to remain whole. Um, I've got a square right now. Our current law, from what I understand, is that uh, it, it, even if in America you break the law, you're separated from your families. And so I think conservatives need to look at that whole justice reform movement entirely and see if that's working well because we want people we don't like recidivism we want people to be healed from uh, their incarceration to live productive lives and um, you know and whether it's illegal immigrants or whether it's criminals here in America uh, we, we need to get a better criminal justice system going and I think that's a place where you find conservatives and liberals working together on that.
0: So you're, you're making a comparison between when families are torn apart because someone is incarcerated, mm-hmm. and when families are uh, perhaps separated because they have crossed the border, some of them seeking asylum.
7: Right. Okay. Right. Well, and, I, and we've got to look at that entirely and, and see if there are differences. And I think this is uh, an issue where you'll find Republican and Democrat agreement on that, that, you know, if we can figure out a way where families aren't separated because we don't want children to have to pay for the crimes of their parents. Um, that's 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 something that I think you'll find conservatives and evangelicals willing to work together on. Thanks for the preview. Yeah, happy to. Thanks so much, Ryan, and uh, always fun to be with you. Jeff Hunt directs the
0: Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University, host of the Western Conservative Summit in Denver, June 8th and 9th. Many families are celebrating graduations this month. The Kornfeld family of Denver has two newly minted college grads, 22-year-old Izzy Kornfeld and her 79-year-old grandmother, Linda. Linda dropped out of college half a century ago and part because of Izzy's encouragement has now finally finished her degree. Welcome to you both.
8: Thank you, Ryan. Thanks,
9: Ryan, for having us. Okay.
0: You both graduated from East High in Denver. Linda, the class of 57, Izzy, the class of 2014. Uh, Izzy, you now have a diploma from the University of Virginia in global studies. Linda, you'll get yours in sociology from the University of Denver next week. Uh, Tell us why you didn't finish college the first time around.
8: Well, I met a wonderful man, and we moved away from Denver. And uh, where we lived, Wichita, Kansas, I was not able to continue. And then we started our family, had two terrific sons, and uh, enjoyed being together and enjoying life together. So uh, college became on the back burner.
0: What were you studying back then?
8: Uh, Political science, actually.
0: Okay, so you've gone from political science and decades later to sociology. Right. Okay. Why did you choose sociology?
8: Uh, It sort of fits me. Uh, It fits my values and my interests, and it turned out to be an ideal uh, major. I loved my classmates, my professors, uh, our discussions, so it turned out to really be a good fit.
0: Did you have... Uh, Regrets over the years, Linda, that you hadn't finished college. Oh,
8: definitely. I regret what Izzy is able to uh, achieve and and uh, what's appropriate for her and available to her. I regret uh, not having the same opportunities of studying abroad, even though I did squeak in one. But <laughs> but uh, yes, I do regret not having the same opportunities as today's generation of college graduates.
0: Do you remember, Izzy, uh, when you became aware that your grandmother hadn't finished college?
9: Yeah, I do, Ryan. Um, And I was also, I was pretty surprised um, when I was younger and I became aware of that because if you know my grandma, she's a pistol. She's super (laughs) smart. She's very educated. She's an amazing writer, very eloquent. um, And she's really, you know, involved uh, with what's going on in Denver and the world. Um, And so if you know her and you know how smart she is and how curious she is, um, I came to, you know, it was a big surprise for me that she didn't.
0: Yeah. Uh, and what did you make of it when you, when you found that out? And did you begin encouraging her right away or did it take some cajoling?
9: Um, I was a lot younger when I found out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was more of just kind of settled in and I was like, oh, you know, I'm surprised. And I you know a lot of people in our family are lucky enough to go to college. So I was definitely surprised. Um, but as I got older, we started, you know, playing with the idea and talking about it. Um, and I, we started, I think we started all encouraging her um, to get back into
0: it. You call her Ninny. I do, you yes. You do? <laughs> yes, and which what, I love. Which you love. <laughs> what, what were those conversations like? And did, I, I wonder if you, Linda, I'll call you Linda, okay. <laughs> if you um, appreciated that your family was giving you that kind of pressure. Oh,
8: absolutely. Our family is very close and very fun-loving, and uh, I feel that all five grandchildren were very involved in teaching me how to navigate the Internet and uh, the... Uh, paper format, so uh, I appreciated it, and it was from their encouragement that I realized, hey, why not? You can do it.
0: So you decided in 2015 to re-enroll at DU? Yes. Okay. And I want to hear from you what that experience was like.
8: Oh, it was... Tell me
0: about your first day on campus. Well, my (laughs) first
8: day... (laughs) Um, I imagine I couldn't imagine what they must be thinking, my classmates, and it was a class of maybe twenty. Do you
0: remember what the class was? It
8: was a communications class. Okay. And um, I, I imagine them thinking, "What is she doing here?" And not figuring out exactly where I fit in or why I was sitting among them. And then uh, we introduced ourselves. And I said, uh, I'm a senior in more ways than one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but the beauty of it all, I was so graciously uh, accepted by classmates, by professors. I never felt uh, anyone uh, uh, doubting why I was there. I was asked to be their project uh, classmates, and so it was a beautiful relationship. <laughs>
0: Were you two in touch while you were both in school?
8: <laughs> oh, you've been. Oh,
9: yeah. We had some hilarious conversations. Nini would call me and ask me how to study for midterms, and I'd be like, "Wait, I'm studying right now too. This is what I do." So I would tell her how I would study for classes. And Which then, is how. Um, so for memorization, I'm a big flashcards girl. Okay. I know that I know it's old school, but I think it works. Um, I'm also very into handwritten notes. Um, you know, it's proven that if you handwrite things, you remember them better than if you type them. Um, so just, you know, sharing some of those tips with my grandma um, was really funny and also really fun that we got to go back and forth and talk about how you we were studying for midterms and how
8: our 10-page papers were going.
0: How did you wind up studying? Was it flashcards?
8: Well, Izzy said flashcards. And I thought, flashcards? Why would I want to do that? It's one more step. So I didn't the first time. And then I was struggling and I thought, you know, I'm going to try Izzy's. Uh, system, And by gosh, it worked. And I used flashcards and did very well, thanks to her, on my midterms and finals.
0: (laughs) What was the hardest part of going back to school for you, Linda?
8: I can't even think. Really? There was nothing hard other than I feel that I wish I had more time there. I wish I had more um, classes to take, more professors to learn from, so... Oh, you know, I take it back. The okay. hard part was <laughs> the hard part was navigating the uh, electronic aspect of college. It it was quite daunting.
0: Okay, how did that differ from when you were oh, there was first no in such school? Th-
8: animal. Uh-huh. <laughs> so <laughs> it differed greatly.
0: Give me an example.
8: Well, uh, uh, at DU, there's a website called Canvas, and our um, assignments are there, our grades are there, sometimes our uh, exams are there where it's timed and you have to pull it up, and I was so uh, intimidated, but I had marvelous professors who talked me through it, and I eventually learn the system.
0: Do you remember having conversations about that, Izzy?
8: Oh, yeah. We had a <laughs> lot of
9: conversations about it. I remember we had, um, from Nini's first paper, we were talking about using a Word document and how, you know, you constantly have to save it. It won't oh. necessarily autosave, That's a whole separate setting. And then, so one of your first papers, right, Nini, it got deleted. So she had written this oh, entire no. thing.
8: And I was so pleased with it. I loved it. And I woke up the next morning and it was gone.
9: Oh. <sighs> Yeah. So
8: that that was a problematic yeah. aspect.
9: But the good news is it never happened again because you right. learned okay. how to use <laughs> word
8: properly. So Thanks to you and, yeah. and Maddie and yeah. others. But even,
9: you know, just like indenting and one-inch margins and, you know, professors will give you really specific um, instructions of what to do for a paper. Um, so I remember having some funny conversations, you know, just to make sure all the logistics of her paper uh, were correct before she turned it in.
0: I know that you were at different institutions, but did you feel like you were in college together?
9: Oh, yeah, I absolutely do. We would have really um, funny conversations before class. You know, Nini would be like, oh, I got to go. I got to go get my coffee before class. And I'd be like, (laughs) wait, me too. And we're both going to Starbucks on campuses. Um, So I think in a a lot of senses, in terms of we both had um, really nice college campuses. They were both in, you know, cities, um, mine a lot smaller. um, And, you know, just walking to class, we'd walk at the same time. We'd do the
8: same things before class.
0: And indeed, you are essentially graduating at the same time, Yeah, maybe some days apart. With
8: uh, Izzy's encouragement, I'm graduating the same year she did, and we're going to have a big party of friends and classmates. She has nine classmates coming in from Virginia where she went to school to be a part of our celebration, and I'm having classmates and professors as well.
0: And you I understand encouraged this that that you graduate the same year. You wanted that to be a thing. Absolutely. Is it?
8: Yeah. She made me go into high gear. <laughs> <laughs> I did. But I knew she could do it.
0: <laughs> so tell me what it means to you, Linda, to have this degree now and whether it might change your years ahead.
8: Well, what it means to me is a tremendous amount of satisfaction. For completing something I started. It means a lot to me. I think I got the message across the generation that it's never too late to follow your dream. It means a lot to me that I respect and love and, and value education. And I think by my returning, that is shown to others.
0: I, I also wonder if there are people listening maybe uh, later in life who are thinking about Going back to school, that really, their own worst enemy might be their fear.
8: Absolutely.
0: of doing that because you were so warmly received. I, and it th- was
8: phenomenal. To
0: your surprise, yes. Izzy, what are you going to be doing with your degree?
8: Um, so
9: I'm moving to New York on uh, July 1st, and I'll be doing global investment management at J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. I'm um, in Midtown. So I'm excited. It's not the most, I think, you know, direct job for my degree. I was policy and liberal arts. Um, but I think it shows that if you, you know, learn how to think and you're curious and you're intuitive, I think you can, you know, do anything with your degree in 2018.
0: Well, it was nice to meet you both. Thanks for sharing the story. Congratulations. How were your grades? I didn't even ask. Did
9: well, you do well? this one over here is a 4.0 from DU. And, so I think that's
8: a pretty big deal. And <laughs> if they made... um uh he, Phi Beta Phi Kappa, Phi Kappa, Kappa. Okay. UVA, so
0: it's so. not like you guys just scraped by <laughs> yeah, here No, no. Okay. we screwed
8: around a little bit, but not too much Right, we partied, but we studied hard
0: <laughs> It's nice to meet you both
8: Ryan, thank you for having thank us Thank you so much, this was fun
0: You heard from 22-year-old Izzy Kornfeld and her 79-year-old grandmother Linda Kornfeld both from Denver and both members of the college class of 2018 And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. There are lots of ways to keep in touch with us at Colorado Matters on Twitter. I'm at CPR Warner, and we are CPR News on Facebook. You can subscribe to the Colorado Matters podcast through your favorite podcast service, including iTunes. We're also on NPR One. This is Colorado Public Radio News.